All right, well, if you have your Bibles, find your way to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We are uh, in a series this month of July called Teach Me to Pray. And uh, some of you may have felt like those in that video where you've found yourself in an awkward position, not knowing what to pray or how to pray. And Jesus has been teaching us here in Luke chapter 6 on how to pray. And so be turning there uh, to Luke 6 while you do. I do need to ask for you to pray for me. Uh, late yesterday afternoon, I started having some severe back pain, some sciatic nerve issues. I was at the chiropractor last night about nine o'clock thinking, how in the world am I going to get through in the morning? And uh, the doctor said, your prescription is to preach three times in the morning. And so here we go. We're going to get after. Now, if I start crying and shout hallelujah, it may not be that I'm filled with the Spirit, okay? It may just be I'm in a lot of pain and you bear with me, okay? But Matthew chapter 6, if you're able to stand, let's do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 6, let's start reading at verse 5 and uh, read down to what our main phrase and focus will be this morning, which will be verse 10. Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus says that when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, because they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, what a joy it is now to be able to be under your word. And uh, your word is alive. It is active. It cuts. And Lord, I pray this morning that you'd bring conviction to every one of us in this room regarding our prayer life, the focus of our prayer. God, that you would help us reach a whole new level of our prayer to you. May Jesus be exalted For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, prior to uh, about 1947, um, no aircraft had ever flown faster than the speed of sound. That's really, really fast, about 767 miles per hour fast. In fact, they didn't even think up until this point that would ever be done. Uh, They just assumed that when you got to the sound barrier, that the aircraft would just start shaking so much that it would just fall apart. Uh, In fact, whenever they would get close to the uh, sound barrier, it would. It would shake so much, the aircraft would lose all control. And even though pilot after pilot after pilot kept trying harder and faster and harder and faster, they never could break through. It always ended up in a crash, oftentimes causing the death of the pilot. And one of the reasons for that is as it would get close to that sound barrier, all of the controls in the aircraft would start working the wrong way. In fact, if you pull the stick forward, it's supposed to go up 
But when they pulled the stick forward, the nose would dive. And so finally they had the idea, what if as we approached the sound barrier, what if we started using the controls in the opposite direction? And that's what they did. And on October 14th, 1947, Chuck Yeager, you see a picture here of him. That's exactly what he did. When he came upon the sound barrier and the the aircraft started to shake, he did the exact opposite of what he'd been trained to do. He did the opposite of what he always did. Instead of pushing the stick forward to go up, he pulled it back, and it worked. And for the first time, an aircraft flew faster than the speed of sound. In other words, the lesson of that story is this, that the breakthrough that we so want, the breakthrough that we keep trying for over and over and over again, but yet we don't seem to get the results that we want, the breakthrough comes when we start doing things differently than we're used to. And I wonder this morning if the breakthrough in your prayer life might be if you pray differently than the way you normally pray. What if the barrier that you can't get past and and the, the thing that's holding you back is that you keep focusing on the same thing, you keep praying the same way, and what Jesus wants you to do is to pray in the opposite direction. You remember Jesus' disciples came to him and said, man, Jesus, you pray so differently than we pray. Would you teach us to pray? We're JV, like we're the kid in the pool with floaties. We need help. Jesus says, I'll help you. I'll teach you how to pray. And it's what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And what we've been seeing is how the Lord's Prayer calls us to pray with the exact opposite focus that we normally pray. Look back, for instance, in verse 5. Most people pray concerned about themselves. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Why do you not be like the hypocrites? Because they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen. So whose name is most important in that kind of prayer? It's my name. How am I seen? Do I embarrass myself? Do I use the right words? Do I impress others with how godly I pray? Jesus says, don't pray like that. Pray in the opposite direction, verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be whose name? Your name. How about the breakthrough in your prayer life is stop praying about you and pray about God? Let me show you the other one. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Why? Because they think they'll be heard for their many words. So they go on and on and on and on, putting their little pennies in the gumball machine, thinking that if I nag God long enough, he'll finally give me what I want. Which is, after all, the ultimate motivation of my prayer anyways, namely what I'll get. And Jesus says, what if you prayed in the opposite direction? Verse 10, your kingdom come, whose will? Your will, that is God's will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. So look right here, Berean. Look right here. What if the breakthrough in your prayer life came by stop praying about you and focusing on God? What if prayer was less about your wants and more about worship? What if prayer was less about me and more about him? Maybe then our lives and our prayer lives would enter into a whole new level. And that's what Jesus wants for us in this phrase that we're going to focus on this morning. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your, say that with me. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, what in the world does that mean? Kingdom. How many of you are, are kings this morning? Don't raise your hand. You may make your wife call you king, but that doesn't really count, all right? We're not, we're not used to this whole thing of kings and queens and kingdoms. Like the closest we get to kings is like King James. And I don't mean the Bible translation, right? I mean LeBron James, this guy. Or, or Dairy Queen or, or Burger King or the king of rock and roll. Any Elvis fans? Okay. Or, or maybe Queen Latifah. Anybody know Queen Latifah? Or maybe you are homecoming queen. But listen, that's about as far as we get to the whole kingdom stuff. We're, we just don't typically use that kind of language. Except for at church, and we don't really know what it means, you know. We want to advance the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Or somebody was added to the kingdom. And we throw that language out, but we really don't, don't know what it means. Now, now, just focus here for just a very quick moment. Because I'm going to share with you from Genesis to Revelation in about two or three minutes, okay? And you need it to understand this phrase, and I'll be coming back to it several times. The central theme throughout the Bible is the kingdom of God. The central theme throughout the Bible is the kingdom of God. We don't relate to that, but Jesus' listeners certainly would have. In fact, the whole Bible starts with a king and queen, doesn't it? Adam and Eve are created in God's image, and what are they told to do? To have dominion over the earth. They have power. They have reign over creation. But what do they do? They give it away. They give it away to another power, the evil one. They surrender to him rather than surrendering to God. In fact, the Bible calls Satan the small g, small g, God of this world. And that's why when you look around, everything is in chaos. Amen? Anybody like look at the world and say, this record's broken. Something's messed up. Now, there may no mistake, God is still sovereignly in control. The Bible is clear about that. But the world is under the power and the influence of not a human king, but of an evil king, Satan himself. And that's why when you look around, you see hurricanes that absolutely devastate cities. The whole creation is convulsing. Uh, you've got strife, relational strife. You've got racism. You've got all different types of things. It's not how it's supposed to be. And what we're longing for, in fact, what the Bible says is the reason why things are so chaotic. Do you want to know why everything is messed up? Because the wrong king, at least in the world, is on the throne. 
And that's why we want a king to come and make it right. It, it's why our kids love superheroes, you know, like Superman and, and Batman, because we think the right leader could come along and make it all right. It's why some of you are consumed in politics, because you think a certain party or a certain president could make it right. Romans 8 says we are all longing for a king. And the Old Testament... You ready for the whole testament? Is, is pointing you to a king is coming, a king is coming, a king is coming. Abraham is given land and people. Israel is called a kingdom of priests. David is promised an eternal throne. In 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, kings rise and kings fall and nobody can make it right. The prophets are saying, look, look into the future, a king is coming. And how does the New Testament, by the way, open? Strange. With a genealogy that goes back to David, who was a king. And Magi are searching for a king born in a manger, and King Herod is threatened. He wants this baby dead. And John the Baptist is doing what you only do for a king. He is preparing the way. Why is that? Because the long-awaited king is here. His name is Jesus. And he is God in the flesh. And what happens is he is anointed by the Spirit at his baptism. And listen, listen, he goes out into the wilderness and he defeats the very one who defeated Adam in the garden. And then just watch his ministry. He does what the human king over the creation is supposed to do. He starts making things right. So what does he say to hurricanes? Be still. And they do. And he says to people who are in relational strife, here's what reconciliation looks like. And, and he shows you not what selfishness is about, but what servanthood is about. And he looks at sickness and death, and what does he do? He heals the sick, and he raises the dead. He is showing you what life is like under the good king. What life is like under the real king but he does not make his kingdom on earth final at that moment. It is what we often call in, in theological terms, already not yet. Because you know what Jesus does? Oh, this has everything to do with you. He says, all what authority has been given to me, so go into all nations and make disciples. And that is what we are to be about until one day this king is going to return and he will make everything right for good and forever. Amen? Amen. Now that's Genesis through Revelation in just a few minutes. Because when we come to the Lord's Prayer and think, your kingdom come, we don't know what that means. It's got all that background, and I'm going to draw from that background, so I hope you are paying attention, as to what it means for us to pray, your kingdom come. So, forget the theology for a moment. What does this mean for me practically? What does it mean for you to pray and mean it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here it is. You ready? Four things. I hope you brought a lunch. 
You need to be glad there's another service following this one that forces me to be done. I'm keeping the third service till five o'clock this afternoon. (laughs) Four things that when you pray and mean it, your kingdom come, your will be done, here's what you're praying. Number one is you're praying a prayer of personal surrender. You are praying a prayer of personal surrender. You are saying this, I don't want to be king anymore. Now, what did I mention in all that crash course of theology? I said, when the right king is on the throne, everything's better. So when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, here's what you're saying. When I am king of my life, I make a big, fat, hairy mess of my life. Anybody, like maybe you shouldn't raise your hands, but anybody with me? Like, when I am responsible for all my decision-making and all the things in my life in my own power, man, I make a lot of really dumb mistakes. I I make a disaster of things. Yeah, you're right, because when the wrong king is on the throne, it usually ends up in a mess. Just look back at the Garden of Eden or just look at your own life. The Lord's Prayer is saying that first prayer is an act of worship, hallowed be your name, but it is secondly an act of surrender. When you pray this prayer, what you are doing is you are waving the white flag over your life. I don't want to be king anymore. I don't want to be queen anymore of my life. God, I'm tired. My money... My marriage, my relationships, I keep making a mess. And your word says that Jesus is king, and when the right king is on the throne, that life is better. It doesn't mean easier, it just means better. And so, I surrender. I surrender. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life. I can't do this anymore. And some of you would say, well, I'm not, like, I'm not trying to be king. Yes, you are. Sure you are. You're trying to be king and queen of your life. Let me give you just some practical ways that we do this. Very convicting for me. You have an area in your life that is off limits to other people or to God. And anytime that area in your life gets mentioned, you get real defensive. You have areas that when you come to church, you hope there's not a sermon on. Like, don't you dare preach on money, right? Or I'm leaving. Or don't you dare preach on serving or or a whole host of things. I have an area in my life that's, you ready? Mine. Back off. Why is that? Because every king tries to defend their territory. Every king has boundaries that once you cross over that line, war. So one of the ways we know we're trying to be king is we have an area in our life that we're very sensitive to anybody else addressing. Number two is you have rules that everybody must obey. How many of you have ever hypothetically been caught in traffic? (laughs) And this is what you either said or thought. Don't these people know that I have somewhere to be? Answer, actually, no, they don't have any idea about your agenda. But, I mean, don't they know that, that ultimately I've got to get somewhere or somebody's late? Spouses don't, like, nudge your husband or wife. Somebody's late. 
How could they waste my time? Or your kids disobey. This gets close to home, hypothetically. Your kids disobey and you're upset, not because of their development, but because of your reputation. You see, kings have edicts and they don't like traitors. And anybody that stands in their way of getting what they want is in serious trouble. Number three is, here's how you know you're trying to be king in your life right here, right here, right here, right here. You don't pray. You don't pray. Why? Because pride is what you have when you are the king. Prayer is what you do when you need a king. You don't need help from anybody else because you're queen. A dependent king, a dependent queen, is a contradiction in terms. You don't need other people. Other people need you. And so you never ask for help. And if you never ask for help, why in the world would you ask God for help? Am I convicting yet? No? No? Okay, we'll keep going. How do you respond to that feeling of being powerless? So you're crushed by the accident. You're overwhelmed by the situation that you're in, not because of the issue, but because you couldn't do anything to stop it. In other words, how many of you are control freaks? No hands and no fingers like her, him. That feeling of it's out of my control and I can't stand it means who wants to be in charge of your life? Me, you. Or here's the last one. Uh, you're all about individual rights. Rights, 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 rights. I get in a little bit of trouble here, but that's okay. I typically do. Thy will be done flies in the face of American culture. We are consumed. We're consumed with our rights. Look, look here at just a sample of what our culture is about. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. And more, much more than this, I did it my to include my 1980s in there, right? Remember last week? But what, what's the theme of all that? We covered about every generation. It's all about my rights. I mean, we have human rights and civil rights and women's rights and animal rights. We even have, and I'm not making this up, vegetable rights. You're laughing, but I, this is a true article that I came across advocating for vegetable rights. It says this, imagine that you're sitting quietly where you live, the place that you've lived your entire life in harmony with the earth. Suddenly, a hand rips you out of your comfortable place. The betrayal is made even worse by the fact that it was that same hand that brought you water during the summer. 
Once you're ripped from your home, you're forced to bathe in cold water, laid naked on a sterile whiteboard. You see the flashing of a large gleaming knife as it dismembers you piece by piece. Starting with your toes and working all the way up your body. Fluids ooze out of you as the pain mounts. And the last thing you see is the blade coming for your head. This is the sad, short, and painful life of a vegetable. And then here's how the article concluded. I wish I was making this up. Vegetables have feelings too. and yet are raised in inhumane conditions. End this madness now. So I have a new slogan for our church here. Here's the slogan, give peas a chance. (laughs) Will that that work? No, no, that's terrible. But now don't, don't misunderstand me. Rights are important. So hear what I am saying and what I'm not saying. Rights are important. And I'm thankful for the Bill of Rights and Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and and Susan B. Anthony. And and we stand for the right to life here at Berean. Listen, listen, yes, rights are important, but often our demand of rights is less about social justice and more about personal prerogatives. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up a cross, a symbol of self-sacrifice. Just ask Jesus and follow me. You are not ready and I am not ready to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven until you and I are ready for a regime change. Where it's no longer about your rights and it's no longer about your territories and it's no longer about you because you don't want to be king anymore. That's the first thing this prayer is. Prayer is I have three more. They're not as long as the first one. It's not just prayer is a personal surrender, but it's also a parental trust. In fact, go back to verse 9 here in the Lord's Prayer. I want to show you this in the text. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. So that's how it starts. Hallowed be your name. And then comes the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, What Jesus is saying is in the context of praying, not my kingdom, but your kingdom, not my will, but your will, is understanding I have a Father in heaven. And what does Jesus say that Father in heaven knows? Look at verse 8. Do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Right here, right here, right here. In other words, Jesus is saying the reason why you can say, not my will, but your will, is because you know that you have a Father who loves you more than you love you. Yet you've got something in your life that you really think you need. You think you've got to have it. I mean, it's consuming you. It may be a good thing, but praying your will be done, not my will, means I trust God 
to know what's best for me. I don't trust me to know what's best for me. So it's not just, I don't want to be king anymore. It's, I want Jesus to be king because I believe Jesus knows what's best for my life. Do you see? I mean, man, we do this all the time. My kids do this. They ask me for things all the time that they think they need, and I know they don't. My son is into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, and he asked me the other day if I would buy him some nunchucks. And I said, well, you're eight. What in the world do you need nunchucks for? And he said, to protect my room against my sisters. <laughs> now, in his mind, that made perfect sense. And I can just see him, you know, like standing there at the door, ready to protect it. But I know as his father, that's the last thing in the world he needs. That will be a disaster for his life. We need to remember that you and I are the eight-year-old when it comes to prayer. Convinced we know what we need. But praying thy will be done, not my will be done. Trust that there's a Father who will answer based on what you need, not what you think you need. Tim Keller says this, that's right nail on the head. You would never imagine that getting your heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Getting your heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing. You pray, your will be done. Why? Because our Father who is in heaven, who knows what you need before you even ask it. Here's the third thing that this prayer means is it's a missional action. Look back at verse 10. Let me show you this in the text. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Then here's the phrase, on where? On earth as it is in heaven. So I want this will to be done, this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, do you remember all that theology we went through? What was Jesus's kingdom like on earth? Come in closer. It was like this, social justice, caring for the poor, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the gospel everywhere he went, seeing relationships reconciled, Forgiving people who have offended you deeply. Praying thy kingdom come on earth means you are on a crusade. Not the kind where you pick up a sword, the kind that you lay down your life for other people. If you pray thy kingdom come on earth, on earth, on earth as it is in heaven, you must leave your agenda at the door. And your life's agenda has become the mission that God has called you to. It's a call to action. It's a call to mission. And lastly, it is a prayer of eternal hope. Look at the text again. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. When Jesus teaches us here to pray thy kingdom come, he is saying this. You must be ready for this kingdom to come to an end. But I'm not married yet. But I don't have children yet. But I haven't seen my grandchildren 
grow up yet. The penetrating question of this prayer is what kingdom is your heart most attached to? And while there are great things in this life, you would leave them in a second if it meant getting Jesus. And you would be perfectly fine if right now, today, this afternoon, the sky split and Jesus returned and life as you know it in high school and you know it in the South Metro was over and what you got for eternity was the kingdom of God. That'd be perfectly fine by you. And if you're not ready for that, don't pray this prayer. It is what Paul said and even prayed in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether or not I go to his kingdom or whether or not his kingdom splits the sky now, it doesn't matter because my future is hopeful. It is like, it is like that day in the office where at the end of the day, you're about to go on summer vacation. Do you know what that day feels like? And things come up and, and, and issues arise, but they don't seem to bother you as much. Why? Because at the end of the day, something glorious is coming. And you pray when your aircraft is shaking and about to fall apart and your life seems like it's falling apart around you, but you pray because what grounds you here is what's coming then. And bring it on, Jesus. Bring it on. This gets to where your hope really is and what kingdom that hope is found. Don't you love the Lord's Prayer? Anybody pray like this? It's the total opposite direction, isn't it? Let me just summarize the morning. Jesus is saying, when you pray, my kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Here's what you're praying right here. You ready to take the floaties off? Jump in the big kid pool? Jesus says, I want you to pray a prayer where you want your kingdom to be overthrown. You want your life to be in the hands of somebody else. You don't want your agenda to be first. You want his agenda to be first. All the while, ready and waiting for the world to come to an end and Jesus to make everything right. That's just not how we pray. And maybe that's why we don't break through. Maybe that's why we keep trying and we keep trying and we keep trying and we feel like in our prayer life we're going nowhere. And why is it? Because you need to pray in the opposite direction. Maybe a little more his kingdom and a little less yours. Let me end this morning by saying this. This is really important. You can't pray for the kingdom until you receive the kingdom. You can't pray for the kingdom until you receive the kingdom. In fact, later on here in Matthew 6, verse 33, to be exact, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so where this starts in your life, this breakthrough, this sonic boom, this getting into a whole nother level, it starts by this. Not asking Jesus to come take over the world by asking Jesus to come take over your heart.
and everything else will be added. Everything else will come later. Because if your heart doesn't have Jesus as king, it doesn't matter if you pray this or not. And in order for that to happen this morning, you've got to do what every king has to do when they lose the battle. You've got to wave the white flag and say, I surrender. I trust Jesus as my king. I am a sinner. I make a mess of things. Just look at my life. So Jesus, I want you to come into my life and be king. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And the only reason that you can surrender to him is because he surrendered for you. This is beautiful. The only reason that you can surrender to him is because he surrendered for you. He didn't surrender to you. That would be called heresy, okay? He didn't surrender to you. He surrendered for you. Why? Because do you remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane about to take the wrath of God, about to take the payment that your sin and my sin deserved? What did he pray? Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, what did he pray? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Jesus prayed the Lord's prayer for you. Jesus surrendered his will for you so that you could surrender your will to him and find life and find grace and to see your life break through into a level it's never been before. And I didn't say it'd be easy. I just said it'd be awesome. For Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. So I plead with you this morning. I plead with you in a world that says it's good to be king. In a world where it says you got to fight for your right to party. A world that brags, I did it my way. Jesus is calling you past the barrier to pray in the opposite direction. Not my will, but yours. Let's pray. Father, there are some in this room, in fact, maybe all in this room, who need to wave the white flag. There are areas in their life where they are the functional king. And it's often imaged in how we pray and what we pray for. This morning I pray for holy surrender. I pray for sweet brokenness. I pray for white flags all around this room of surrender to you. And we mean it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.